I was in a small hotel room in Dallas, Texas, when I received the call. Fourth Universalist wanted me. It was one of those moments you don't forget that takes you aback and catches your breath that you know will change your life and where you thought you were going. Fourth Universalist was the first of five congregations I had interviewed for, and it was by far the most intimidating. I was serving a lovely but small congregation in an obscure part of southeastern Wisconsin, less than two years out of divinity school. The idea that a big city, historic Central Park adjacent community like Fourth U would want me was too presumptuous to really take seriously. Surely I thought they would want someone with a long resume, one of those famous UU ministers who people had heard of, or someone who had led a big congregation, or grown one. I felt lucky and in awe in that moment, in that hotel room in Dallas, to be chosen as your senior minister. And I have felt lucky and in awe ever since. Serving has been a privilege that I could not have dreamed of, an honor bestowed that feels difficult to be worthy of, but that inspires perpetual moments of gratitude. Over the past seven years, we have come to know each other well. We have been through a lot together. When we started, you were finishing a two-year interim ministry, a period that addressed the tumultuous ending of the last senior minister, but also roughly a century of challenging ministries. My direct predecessor was loved by many, but her ending was challenging. The interim did a fantastic job in helping process and heal this complex ending but it would have been impossible for all the wounds to be closed and all the trust to be restored. I did my best seven years ago to earn your trust, knowing that experience had sometimes taught you skepticism. You trusted first in small ways, like allowing me to select on committee's new staff or working with the nominating committee to choose new board members. I did my best to always be worthy of your trust and to prioritize integrity and kindness above all else. Soon we learned to trust each other in bigger ways. We were two months in when November election in 2016 happened and Trump was elected. It shocked and scared and hurt many of us. It also asked a lot of us. I've often thought that we Unitarian Universalists are at our best when we have our backs to the wall and have something to fight for or against. It reminds us why this faith matters while communities like this matter and at time can literally save lives. Our congregation in that moment began to turn outward. After years of internal turmoil, after November 2016, the health that we had started to build allowed us to focus on our truer and higher purpose, to serve the world and work for change. We took aim not at ourselves, no more circling firing squads, 
but at the injustices around us. It started by accepting an invitation to become a sanctuary congregation. It's an ancient practice adapted to shield undocumented people from deportation. We formed a justice team, a rapid response team. We feared massive raids on New York City immigrant communities and saw turmoil at JFK airport following the Muslim travel ban. We wanted to be able to show up when the unthinkable happened. Our new sanctuary status attracted some local news. And within a few weeks, our staff discovered swastikas carved on our front doors, along with Nazi hate speech. It was not just an attack on the pluralistic values of our congregation, but an effort to intimidate us into obedience and silence to the new order of things. The community around us rallied and we held a standing room only vigil in this space, including speakers such as Congressman Jerry Nadler and our neighbor, Bill Moyers. The desecration of our sacred space and the response struck a special chord, earning us a profile in the times because it was the one of the first real tangible examples that no one in New York City was safe in that new world. The ugliness and hate could find you even here on the liberal Upper West Side. But instead of receding into yourselves, when faced with such visible and ominous opposition, you all did the opposite. You began welcoming immigrant families into the congregation, people who needed a place to stay, sometimes for a short time, sometimes for a long time. When the Hernandez family moved into our loft, we changed forever. We were no longer just for ourselves, no longer just for justice in theory, but actually for doing the work. Ara and her children lived here for close to nine months, reminding us that the real work of justice is never separated from real human beings who you come to love. There was media then too. At one point, a vast swarm of cameras encircled this sanctuary all an effort to show the world the cruelties of our government and urge them to change. They proved too heartless to be moved then, but Ara and her family eventually got those visas last year. Nothing we have done has made me more proud. It was also around that time our focus began to be on this building of ours, the real and symbolic strength that protected those in sanctuary and allowed this to be a beacon of hope in this city. Old buildings are expensive to maintain and our 1898 neo-Gothic building, once dubbed the Cathedral of Universalism, sagged under the weight of years of deferred maintenance. Most pressing was the roof, our architects, after evaluation, warned us we had one winter left before it became uninhabitable. We knew that this building structure was failing. Buckets under leaks were not an uncommon sight in this sanctuary and in offices. Plaster was literally falling on people. I got hit by a piece standing right over there. 
there was a real question about whether this building would survive even another year and that we would have to move, find someplace else. Imagine if our last few years had been spent dealing with that. Fortunately, as you know, sitting here in the sanctuary right now, without plaster falling on your heads, we did it. We together worked tirelessly and gave generously, more than we even thought we could. Neighbors rallied around us from the Kenilworth, West 77th, and the San Remo, giving generously and encouraging their friends to do so too. Our office staff, Sheila Powers, especially helped secure grants and loans that we are still benefiting from today. The work is still happening. It was an all-hands-on-deck moment, and a moment when the future of this community could have gone in so many different directions, some very challenging. We achieved what hadn't been done in decades. We removed the existential threat that this building faced and began to restore it to its original beauty. As our sanctuary work proved, this sanctuary is not just a place. It's not just stone walls and stained glass windows. It's a powerful symbol of who we are and a powerful tool in the implementation of our work for justice in the world. We can be proud of saving it too. The campaign to save the building happened just in the nick of time. You're shortly after the COVID-19 pandemic happened. Descended upon us and we're just now kind of coming out of it with our mask mandate being repealed in Easter. COVID challenged so many of us in so many ways, but it also challenged our congregation to reimagine who it was and who it served and who were our community. Our new Zoom hybrid worship meant that we could have members from around the world. People joining right now from Mexico, Indonesia, Europe. We held joint services with congregations in Ireland and the United Kingdom. Members who moved away from New York City could stay members. Folks who are homebound could be part of our worship life. In all the hardship, we found new and wonderful ways to build and grow. I would like to think that the last seven years, so full of beauty and challenges, calls to action and deeper community have been a wonderful seven years. We have grown together, both size, attendance, but really what matters most is the commitment and trust in our sense of purpose. The world needs places like Fourth Universalist. It needs people like all of you who are together in the work of changing the world. The new minister will, I believe, inherit an unquestionably larger, more vibrant, more engaged, and fundamentally healthy community. And you are all to thank for that. I want you to know that my decision to leave was not an easy one. I have loved my time with all of you. I've loved the dynamic work of ministry that is truly different than anywhere else in the world. During my time with you, I got married and you throw us an engagement party. 
You didn't have to do that. You welcome Kristen, my now wife, and later our son Rowan as one of your own. You didn't have to do that either. I want you to know that I did not intend or plan to leave. Early this spring, I was invited to coffee by an official from Carleton College who told me that their chaplain position was opening up, encouraged me to apply, and then sent me the application when it went live. I thought I was probably a long shot. I had no ch college chaplaincy experience at all, but figured it wouldn't hurt to send in a resume and a cover letter. Know that that position has always been special to me. It is not a random job. Carleton was my college. I had worked at the chapel as a student for two years. I majored there in religion. The chaplain who is now retiring and has served there since 1997 was my first real mentor. She was the first person to say, maybe I could be a minister, should be a minister. But more importantly, she was one of the first people outside of my family who believed in me and saw my potential as a person. To serve in a place that helped form me so profoundly was an opportunity I felt I couldn't pass up. I also know that leaving during sabbatical, leaving so suddenly, is not ideal. I firmly believe a minister should not accept a sabbatical knowing and planning that they are going to leave. Had I planned to leave or just wanted to move back to the Midwest, I wouldn't have taken sabbatical. And there was a congregation, a large, well-paying congregation, a few miles north of Carleton College that was in search. I did not apply for it, nor did I apply anywhere else. I'm sorry it is so late in the year. It makes goodbyes more rushed and the planning for next year more challenging. I could not control the timing, but I have pledged to the board to do everything I can to make this a smooth transition for you. We talked a little bit about what is to come, what is to happen. And like I said, the good news is that the board of trustees is already hard at work. They are already interviewing potential wonderful candidates. The denomination is here for you as well. The other good news is that you are strong and you are healthy. You have good leaders, you have each other, you have clergy, you have good heads on your shoulders and a sense of how this congregation should feel and be. You know what that hard to describe feeling of rightness is when you walk into this place and just feel better about yourself. That feeling of love and connection, that feeling that leaves you when you go on a Sunday feeling better than when you came in. You know how it feels like when the world is falling apart around you, that you are not alone and that you still have power to change it because hope is never lost. These are things that you don't need me for. These are things that you have in yourselves that will serve you well and keep you going. These are things that the new minister will have. In every ending, there is a possibility of a new beginning. There is a chance of new adventures, new path to travel. 
We have done so much in these past seven years together. And I have no doubt that the future will be equally incredible for all of you. I will miss you tremendously. You have changed and shaped my life. You've made me what I am, who I am. You will always be in my heart. I wish you blessings on your journey. I wish you lives full of love and courage and hope, no matter where they lead. I am so grateful to have been your minister. It was a privilege of a lifetime. Thank you for the great honor. Amen. Hi, and welcome to Getting the Message, where we dive a little bit deeper into the themes of the service. And today we're having a little bit of a special session because this is our final Getting the Message together. Today is Reverend Skyler's last Sunday in the pulpit, and we had a special message all about that. And today we wanted to take a chance to talk a little bit about what's coming next. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I remember it's been such a, uh, a good time having these recorded discussions. Um, diving deeper into what services are about. And I think there's, uh, I don't know, it's really great to, to go beyond the topic to have a more conversational um, discussion around stuff. But today, yeah, we want to talk about what happens next. The service today was very much about um, where we've been and a little bit about looking forward, but I think it'd be nice to, to tackle some very clear kind of next steps and what, what happens in the next couple of years for the congregation during a ministerial transition. Yeah, no, I was talking with uh, with some of the members of our RE team, and I was telling them about the church that I interned at. The minister had been there for 40 years. Um, and, you know, so uh, there is a lot of different experiences of ministerial transition and of how congregations handle ministers, how long they have ministers for. So you've been here for seven. It seems like from what I've heard, that's a, a fairly like average UU minister sort of uh, time in a in a specific congregation. That's right. The average uh, UU ministry is generally between four and seven years. Obviously, there are some ministries that last a lot longer, like like your colleague there, um, and there are some that that don't last very long. Um, and so seven is a pretty pretty standard amount, and uh, um, which I think a pretty healthy. Um, healthy time. They say that ministers after seven years have to sort of reinvent themselves um, based on just sort of that length of time, um, which is something that I was, had been thinking about what that would look like had I stayed. So um, so in, in the UU world, what happens after a minister leaves is um, fairly straightforward. It, the congregation enters into a period of two years of interim ministry. Um, those two years are divided up into um, really kind of two parts, but they're interwoven within each other. The first of those two years is a time of reflection, discernment, looking back and also looking forward for the congregation. So a lot of conversation, um, very intentional conversation with a interim minister around who are the congregation, who do they wanna become, who have they been with the minister, who are they separate from the, the old minister? Um, and then what kind of minister might they want? Um, how do they wanna grow as a community? What does that next stage of the journey look like? So a lot of intentional discussions, conversations, sermons, um, workshops around that. Um, if there are wounds or um, or parts that need healing, uh, the interim does a lot of that work too. Um, rebuilding trust, um, finding ways of reestablishing healthy 
patterns so that the next minister who comes in who's settled uh, is able to start on a right foot. So, so that's a lot of the work in the beginning. And of course, in the second part of that is the process of finding uh, a new settled minister, um, new settled, in our case, senior minister. So, um, so the first part is a lot of that intentional work. And the second part is some very practical nuts and bolts of how do we enter the search process? Who serves on the search committee? Um, how do we provide them with the tools uh, to successfully find the, the right fit for the congregation? Yeah, well, you know, I think that it's really a beautiful thing that like the, the EU, EU world, um, you know, establishes these guidelines as like a healthy way to do this. And I think that's, that's, that's really healthy because, you know, in the relationship, even in a setting like Unitarian Universalism, which is about congregational polity, that like the congregation has a final say, and that it's about like everybody's own journey, there's still an investment in the relationship with a, with a senior minister at any congregation. And I think it's, you know, important to, to remember that last week uh, I did the mini orientation and, you know, it was a, a strange week to do it uh, with two new folks <laughs> as the minister announces from the pulpit, you know, the, the you were leaving. Uh, and <laughs> it was a little bit of a strange thing to, you know, then, you know, they asked a little bit about that, but I talked about the process. I talked about how community and I talked about how one of the things that you and I have talked a lot about and that we've really tried to work towards in like programming and an RE is that a lot of this is coming from the community up and not just like us doing things and making things happen, but that we are cultivating within the community, the leadership in the community. And I think that that's gonna really like serve us well for like this interim process and for looking for, for a new uh, senior minister. Like that we, we come with a community with lots of leaders cultivated and people, um, you know, we're, we're you know, <laughs> Post pandemic, we're, we're on the other side of all of that. And we've, you know, been through the challenges of that. And we have a community full of people that are doing important work and that are leading things within the community. And I think that's gonna like really set us up well for, for the future. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, a congregation is not its minister. It's not its board members. It's not its staff. It is not any single one person. Um, and, uh, and all of us come and go in our time. We are all asked just to be good stewards of the community when we are here, whether that is being a clergy person and serving in that role or just being a member. So this congregation has endured since 1838 and I've seen a lot of different transitions and a lot of different people have filled in many different capacities. And um, I would like to think that, you know, all our time is spent serving faithfully and, and the congregation is strong enough to uh, look to other leaders, uh, whether it's the four other ordained Unitarian Universalist ministers who are here, whether it's staff like you, Ember, or um, the great lay leaders on the board and on teams and committees and people who are just waiting in the wings to, to uh, grow into another, another space. So um, I think it's so important to remember that this place uh, is so full of leadership and possibility um, and also that you all aren't alone in whatever comes next. Um, the goal of the interim minister is to be your guide for the next two years um, to help the congregation figure out what the next steps are. Uh, and so you don't have to feel like just because um, I'm gone that there, you know, the, there should be someone else coming in very quickly to assume that leadership. Um, the UUA as a national entity is also here as well as our regional staff contact. Um, who will be here to liaison with the search process and with the other intentional work. So 
there's a lot of different support that opens up. And, and in some ways, the UUA, our Unitarian Universalist Association, exists in its most impactful form in these moments of transition. Um, because congregations usually can kind of do their thing very well by themselves because they're used to it. And that's what congregations actually do really well. Where they need support is when their needs interface with the larger movement. And that is often in the ministerial moment of transition. So, um, so they're here for you. Uh, and, uh, and so will be the interim. I think this is a chance for our congregation to, to prove that we can keep doing tough things just like we have in the last few years of COVID, that we have yeah, this leadership full community and we're gonna, we're gonna be just fine and we're gonna emerge on the other side even stronger. Any uh, final, final words? Well, um, you know, I spoke a lot about gratitude in the sermon this week and I feel a lot of gratitude for being here. Um, definitely have some feelings of loss and grief, I think, in leaving and, and moments of reflection about looking back and, and imagining all we've done together and, um, and just feeling really grateful to have been here. Um, I'm going to miss everyone. UU ministers are asked to spend two years apart from their congregation, um, sort of the no contact rule. So, um, you know, I will, I will miss those relationships with many of you um, who are watching this that I know well, um, and some of you who don't know well, I still miss that. Um, so, um, but I have only the best wishes for everything in this congregation, for everyone, for the institution itself, and, and really believe in all of its potential and, and wonderful future that it will have. So. Thank you.